to the Seahawks 360 podcast, a sports ethos production where we look at the Seahawks from every angle, every week. I'm your host, Candace Hagens, and as always, it is a pleasure and a privilege to talk Hawks with you. Well, guys, as you know, I've been on a bit of a break because in reality, this is the slowest time of the NFL season, and I'm not a type of person that's going to put out content when there's no good content. I'd rather for quality content and take a bit of a break than just throw something together for the sake of talking. So for you guys, I am back and I think I've put together some quality content for you. Now, it is still a bit of a dead season. We are closer to training camp, which is only a few weeks away. Training camp for the Seahawks, Seahawks begins exactly 20 days away from today of this recording on the 26th. Um, today is July 6th while I'm recording this, so the countdown, at least for me, has officially begun. But in the meantime, leading up to training camp, I did think that it would be good to evaluate the team and the moves that they're made and to look at the team from a big picture perspective. You know, this is the time for rankings, PFF is sending out rankings, EFF, uh, ESPN is sending out rankings, and it's really the time for that, right, leading into every team's training camp, really evaluating the teams for what they are as a whole and as a positional group. So I didn't want to just do any old positional group rankings, though. As you guys know, I try to give you a little bit of a twist on the things that I do. So as I was thinking about it over the break that I took, I was really thinking about that true fandom is similar to a marriage, right? Like you sort of, when you commit to a team, you commit to this vow to root for the team for better or for worse. And so that gave me the idea to make an entire segment and really episode around evaluating each positional group and see, did it get better? Or did it get worse? So that's what I'm going to bring to you guys. We're going to go through each positional group on both offense and defense. And today, we're just going to focus on the offense, right? Going through each group, evaluating what the Seahawks did, comparing it to what they had last year. And I'll let you know, is it for better or is it for worse? So we got a lot to get into. Let's get into it and talk some Hawks. So before I get into the official rankings, one way or the other, I think it's important to sort of set the table for what happened offensively for the Seahawks last year. And of course, going into the season, no one had any expectations for the Seahawks, especially regarding offense, because Geno Smith was a quarterback. And most people outside of myself did not expect much of anything from Geno Smith. Now, Geno Smith ultimately, as we all know, went on to break everyone's expectations, including my own, which were pretty, pretty decent. And, you know, play it at a Pro Bowl level. And when he started in in the first, I would say, seven weeks, Geno Smith was phenomenal. I mean, truly borderline flawless. I mean, he had that rough game in week two against the San Francisco 49ers. But really outside of that, you really saw Geno ascend to levels and this offense thrive in levels that it had not really in some time it, it wasn't quite MVP level that the 2020 year where Russ started off the year playing at a historically MVP level it wasn't quite that but it was very similar in its trajectory because there was touchdowns galore you know it was really shoot I mean the especially I think back to the Lions game 
in week four, I believe. I either week four or week six. I get it mixed up, but that Lions game became a ultimate shootout. I mean, really, it was no defense. People didn't think Geno had it in him to get 40-plus guys and to get that many touchdowns and to really lead the team on his back when the defense continued to let the team down. So it was truly built on offensive firepower. And for the first half of the NFL season, the Seahawks were a top-five offense in pretty much every major net metric. Now, that trailed off. Uh, after the bye week, the Seahawks, if you just graded their bye week, I, they, they weren't – they, they weren't really doing much, to be honest. They were a mediocre offense at best. And a lot of people contribute that to Geno Smith. And they say that it's an indicator that he wasn't able to sustain that level of offensive power throughout a year. That that's not the type of quarterback that he is. Now, I'm going to disagree with that. I feel like Geno Smith is a type of quarterback who is always going to be a product of his environment. I think he's that kind of guy. He can elevate the team at times if the circumstances are right around him. He's not always going to be able to be that guy, though. He's not going to be able to be the hero and play hero ball on a consistent basis. Every now and then, he might be able to get you out of a pinch, again, if he's in an environment, environment to succeed. I argue that offensively last year, the environment shifted. Much, much more so than Geno Smith himself descended. So if you want to look at the context, and I think context is important when you're looking at the second half of the season, offensively for the Seattle Seahawks, everything broke down. I mean, seriously, Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf missed a game. I think they both came back the following game, but they were playing through injuries in the second half of the season. They had some pretty significant injuries. They were just toughing it out and playing through. You weren't getting healthy wide receivers. And everyone knows collectively that beyond DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett at the wide receiver position, there was literally nothing else. Just practice squad dudes. It was Penny Hart and company. It's it's not a good look for for depth with the wide receiver room. So, Geno Smith didn't really, he had guys he could count on, but they, I mean, Tyler struggled sometimes. He really looked unhealthy, and it affected the ability. I mean, sometimes Geno was doing everything right, and Tyler just couldn't, you know, make the catch or fumble the ball. He just wasn't himself. And you saw games where the Seahawks essentially had to start their practice squad running back, Tony Jones Jr., because everyone else was injured. DJ Dallas was playing injured. And, and, and Tony Jones against the Rams, which is getting absolutely mauled. This is the second game against the Rams. And he looked like a practice squad running back out there. So essentially, the Rams didn't have to respect the run game because Bobby Wagner, who was on the Rams at the time, would just obliterate anything that Tony Jones Jr. did because he's not that good. And a lot of times he'd give off telltale signs to what the team was doing. It was easy to read. Bobby was already familiar with the offense anyway, and he would just blow up the play every single time his quote-unquote interception against the Seahawks in that Rams game was due to a Tony Jones Jr. like just poor everything. Like he just – it was just a – he – he messed that play up and it 
made to an easy play for Bobby that ultimately I don't feel was an interception. But, again, the talented running back wasn't there. The Rams didn't have to respect the offense. So some interceptions that ended up getting thrown in that Rams game by Geno Smith had a lot to do with how defenses were able to play him, how he had to essentially take big risk in order to get a play, in order to even have the possibility to complete plays. He had to because they were covering all the, you know, covering all, they were taking up all the coverage. Like they weren't really worried about anything other than stopping the pass. Makes it really one dimensional and it makes the play calling limited again, it makes Gino have to feel like he has to make these big plays. I think turnovers became a result. He got lucky on not getting some turnovers because he did have some poor throws, some ill-advised throws that I'm not sure he would have taken if he had the proper tools around him. Now, I think the Seahawks have done a pretty good job of trying to address some of the depth issues that they experienced last year. And then we'll go through and we'll talk about exactly what those are. Another thing I want to talk about, though, is not just at the skill positions did the environment change for the second half of the year, but the offensive line broke down. It was at the second half of the season that we begin to see Austin Blythe turn into ultimately what was the worst center in the NFL or the second worst, according to PFF. We saw Gabe Jackson fall off a cliff. His inability to even play a full half of snaps. He and Phil Haynes had to rotate out because of his knee issues, yet they started him every single game. The inconsistency in, 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 um, it prevented chemistry from being able to develop throughout a game. It led to inconsistencies and holes. It led to miscommunications on the offense. It led to easy more sacks for Geno. It led to easy pressure with no real resistance for Geno. The tackles kind of hit a bit of a rookie wall, I'll be honest. They didn't play poorly, but they really looked amazing in the first half of the season. Second half, not so much. I think they begin to feel a little bit more fatigue. The NFL season is much more of a grind than the college season, and I think you saw that drop off after the bye week. You saw it affect them that they still had so many more games to go, so many more snaps to go. Begin to wear on them, uh, especially for Charles Cross. You know, he saw his strength kind of wane a little bit, didn't quite have the, the power to, to fight and, 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 and anchor down the way he was anchoring before. Things like that. So things were breaking down all around him. I'm not saying that Gino was was blameless because I do feel like his my biggest complaint for him was ball security. He had some critical fumbles at, at times and getting rid of the ball. Even in on the, um, under all of those circumstances, if you can get rid of the ball and if you can have ball security, if you can do those two things, in my mind, the team still would have gotten, still would have been better offensively than ultimately what they were. And it may have even shifted a game or two in, in the Seahawks' favor. But nevertheless, that's the past of the past. Now we're looking on to the future. So with that said, I think I want to start with the offensive line and evaluate that because that is so important, especially for Geno Smith. I think really evaluating what they're going to be 
affects the quarterback play in general dramatically, but I think even more so for Geno Smith. So let's start at tackle. My opinion on tackle, is it for better or is it for worse? I say for better. Absolutely for better for me. I think a lot of what I, my evaluation of why I think the tackle group is better than it was last year has everything to do with the projection of growth. I project Charles Cross will be better. I project Abraham Lucas will be better in year two. I think certain things that Cross struggled with, like his strength at times wasn't there. I've, I've heard internally that he's sort of working on that. That's been He's been building up his strength, working on his body to be more equipped to handle some of the strength of the edge rushers he'll be dealing with, especially in the NFC West. I think for both of them, play recognition will be a huge factor in their ability to properly protect. I even think that him learning, for Charles Cross in particular, he had a habit, if you go back and look at his tape, of when his hand placement was where it was perfect, when he had good hand placement, he was always able to win. But you notice that he's not always able to get perfect hand placement. And I think in the NFL, it's unrealistic to expect to always get the perfect hand placement on every snap of every game. What you have to do is be able to adjust, have a plan in case the hand placement isn't quite where you want it to be. What are going to be your counters and how can you still win the rep? Charles struggled with that. I think working working on drills, again, the recognition, again, him getting stronger, all those things will help. Charles Cross also being stronger helps a ton in the run game because he struggled to get push at times. There were times where he showed flashes of the ability to do that. He showed that he was capable to do that. And then there were times where it looked rough in terms of his ability to penetrate and create a hole at the line of scrimmage. So I'm really excited about that. Another thing that I'm excited about in terms of why I think the tackle group is going to be better is because I feel the team now has good depth. Last year, the Seahawks consistently made the mistake of playing undrafted sophomore player Jake Curhan at guard. He is not a guard. He is terrible at guard. He has always been pretty bad at guard. He is clearly a right tackle, and their their consistent insistence on putting him in other places where he did not belong was to very much so the detriment of the team. He always looked bad, and he was always a liability at guard. But at tackle, he can start for you in a pinch. He's that quality of guy at the right tackle position. I hope that they didn't mess with his development too much by moving him around all of these places where he can go back to how he looked that rookie year as a right tackle. Now, even if he can't, and before, I'll just add this, before Abraham Lucas was drafted, people projected that Jake Curhan could and would be the starter, and most people were okay with that thought that he would grow and he could become a starting right tackle. So he is excellent depth. So you've got Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas taking leaps. And then you've got depth at that position. I think he is an excellent 
swing backup tackle for you. And Stone Forsyth is Stone Forsyth. He's still going to struggle in some areas, particularly at getting pushed at the line of scrimmage. He's not that guy. But as your fourth tackle on your roster, I am absolutely okay with the value he brings, especially given that he was a sixth-round pick. I mean, what more can you expect out of him? I think that position is great. And I also just want to point out that, well, I'll come back to my final point. Let me let me, let me me move on to the other part of the interior of the offensive line, and I'll come back and I'll circle to that point that I was going to make about the tackles. So, moving on down the offensive line, the guards. Do I think the, the guards are for better or for worse? For me, it's for better, hands down. Um, now, some people would argue that there hasn't been a massive change internally with the guards. Damian Lewis is still on the, on the team. Phil Haynes, who played a decent amount of snaps for the Seahawks, and, and to be quite honest, played poorly for the Seahawks, that he, you know, that there's not a big difference. That the only real thing they did was get rid of Jackson and add Bradford is depth. Anthony Bradford, who they drafted, is depth. I would argue that's enough. For, for Let's first look at the season Damian Lewis had. Damian Lewis was the best performing offensive lineman on the team last year. He wasn't superstar. He wasn't a star. He wasn't pro ball level. But he was very good. He was good. Like I said, better than everybody else. He was also the most consistent. Now, this is a contract year for Damian Lewis. He has a lot on the line. His ability to be A, healthy. His ability to be B, consistent, which he showed he could be last year, is critical to him getting a second contract with the Seahawks or for any other team for that matter. So, I think that will push him. You'll get the best version of Damian Lewis. I really do. You got a really motivated guy, and he's a he's a guy who, if you know anything about his background, grew up in Louisiana, came from JUCO, worked his way up. He's a real chip on the shoulder guy. So he's a guy that I trust to take that as motivation, his ability to feed his family and and, and provide generational wealth for them. I trust that that will go far in how in his play on the field. Now Phil Haynes is tricky. I understand why somebody would say. He had a terrible year last year. How is it that the Seahawks got better by not just by taking him from a rotational guy to a starter? I think Phil Haynes' bad year last year was a product, just like Geno, of his environment. I'm not saying that I think he's going to be star level, but I think he can do pretty well. I think he can do what Damian Lewis did last year. I really do. And I'll tell you why. The lack of continuity on the offensive line was felt, especially on the interior. Because as I referred to earlier, Gabe Jackson was a starting left guard, a right guard at the time. And his health was was not there. And quite frankly, he wasn't good. He was he was bad and he was old. That <laughs> they continued to start him, I guess, on precedence or on money or experience or whatever they used to justify continuing to start 
Gabe Jackson, who if you listen to last year's podcast, I was adamantly, I was adamantly in favor of benching him. But because they chose not to and they chose to do this rotation where Phil Haynes would come in and, and spare him reps and come back out and then come back in and spare him reps, it really made it harder and it made it easier for the defense because they're, that's how you get miscommunication lapses. You can't, when your offensive line, understanding what the other person's going to do next to you is a big factor in determining how you do, how you counter, how you respond. It also has a great deal to do with the the communication piece, like I said, and it gives the, as an offensive lineman, you sort of get the feel for your opponent. If they use this move, then they use that one. You kind of mark it in your mind and you're like, okay, they they use a swim move on me, then they like the bull rush and they do this. It's, this is their pass rush plan. These are sort of their go-tos and their and how they feel their way through. As you begin to go through the game, while you may more physically wear, it gives you a mental advantage because you then understand what's coming to you and coming and how they're going to attack you by the fourth quarter. Well, you lose all of that if you're miss if you're only getting piecemeal that information. If you're only, if you're losing your mental edge in consistently playing this player or this matchup or these two matchups over and over again, you lose that mental edge of being able to say this is their pass rush plan. They did this move before. Cause guess what? They get the advantage to do that move on Gabe Jackson and Phil Haynes know nothing about it and Two points for, I mean, it doesn't work in a point system, but the concept is the continuity is important, not just from, from an offensive line communication perspective, but just from a playing your opponent perspective. And that gets overlooked. For Phil Haynes, he did not get that. So let's just take a look at his year last year. Phil Haynes had four penalties, two of which, were in week, the first two weeks, when he actually played left guard. People don't really realize that, but the week one and week two, Phil Haynes was playing left guard, and then they moved him to right guard. He played pretty badly at left guard, to be honest. He played poorly, so they moved him to right guard, and that's when he was able to do well. So how about his penalties that he got on the year where he was playing a position that honestly he probably, you know, shouldn't have been playing, at least not at this point in his career. Of his best four games, three of those games were when he had more than 30 reps. His of his four best games, his four highest games where he rated like 69 plus on PFF, he had more than 30 snaps a game. To me, that is an indicator that when given the opportunity, he can shine. Most of his games that were at right guard were less than 30 snaps, 22 snaps, 24 snaps. That's just not a lot. It's not a lot. That's, that, that's at such a disadvantage to him. And they, and they weren't even a consistent 22 snaps. It was seven here, eight there. It was, it was spelling Gabe Jackson. So it just, it put him in a disadvantage in every way. And I think they knew that. And I think that's why they re-signed him and gave the contract and, and the opportunity to do what, what they did. I think they knew 
ultimately that he should have been starting. They, uh, Pete Carroll has referred to Phil Haynes as a as like three starters that they have a guy who they know they can trust to start if needed. And they just didn't like for whatever reason. I guess to not upset Gabe Jackson or whatever reason. But I'm disappointed in how the coaching staff handled that. So, anyway, I think that a motivated Phil Haynes, a cons- uh, a, a, a motiv- not a motivated a motivated Damian Lewis, a Phil Haynes who will be given the opportunity to shine. And I think in the past, he's shown if you give him those type of opportunities, he will thrive. If you really give him the opportunity, truly. When he started in the past, he's done well. And I think he'll do the same. And then Anthony Bradford, who is a rookie. I like like his potential. You never know. He's never taken a snap. But I like his size. Um, He is sort of a mauler. Uh, he is a run a run heavy guy. Now people are concerned that he's not a scheme fit, and I gotta be honest. There were times during the year where the run game, even when healthy, even when they had healthy running backs, there were times when the run, when the run game was poor simply because the offensive line could not get pushed, in particular the interior. And I don't care if they bring in a guy who's a backup who may not thrive in pass pro, but when you need a to when you need to run, you can put him in and and, and, cre- and get a hole created. There is so much value in that. Even if he is not the most agile guy, which I think I think he'll be more agile than people think. I think he'll be able to fit in the system just fine. I really do. It may take some time, but I think he'll get there. I think he's got the athletic profile. He's just got to put it together. He's pretty raw, especially in pass pro. But for run, for running, for rushing, he is <laughs> he's about as good as you can get. You can plug and play that guy. And I expect them to. There are going to be situations where – it's a run-heavy situation. It's three and two. Well, yeah, you can bring him in at, at three and two. Now, I know I just I just advocated against doing that kind of rotation thing. But I think in those instances, you can kind of get away with it more. Especially for Phil Haynes, it's a it's a break, it's one snap, right? For Anthony Bradford, for Anthony Bradford, and it's you know. Every now and then, right? Those run obvious situations where you got to have it, you can bring him in. Worst case scenario, you bring that guy in, he gives you push, you know. You automatically know you can get through the hole with him and you can get the first down. If he fills that role alone for me, I'm good. You just got to, you need somebody on the team like that. You can't just be one dimensional. Everybody can't specialize in pass pro. You already got pass pro happy or or pass pro experts, should I say, in Charles Cross, Abe Lucas. Damian Lewis has proven to be very good at pass pro. Phil Haynes used to have a reputation for only being a pass pro guy. Now, last year, he seemed to be better in the run game. But, you know, you got the one guy is is depth who can get you 
penetration when you need it, that's important. The versatility of that is important, especially in those high leverage type situations. So I like the depth that's there. Um, would love to have another option at guard. I'm sure the team sees that they could put Jay Curhan there if they needed to. You really can't. He's not a guard. But I'm happy overall with the improvements that I think the interior will make. And finally, the center position. Now, I could talk all day about the center position because it is night and First, let me just say, is the center position for better or for worse? It is so much better. In fact, I would argue that on offense, center is the most improved position of any of the positions. Period. This team essentially went from having Austin Blythe and his backup being Kyle Fuller to Evan Brown and Olawatimi. Olu Alusagan Olawatimi. Yes, that's how you pronounce it. But it may not sound like an upgrade, but when when Blythe started with the Seahawks, in hindsight, I think we can all truly say that he retired a year too late. That really he should have retired and just not came back. Like after his year off, he shouldn't have took a year off and tried to come back in in, in the NFL because it, I mean he was done. Yeah, that was it. That was it for him. He he had already given everything he had in the tank, and we were left with the ghost of him. Cal Fuller, who was his backup, was the worst center in the league, according to PFF, the previous year when he got significant you know, starter-like type snaps. So you had two of the worst, worst centers in the league trying to play for you, and yet this offense was still able to be pretty good. And it, and it in the beginning of the season, great. So to have Evan Brown, who I think is really underrated, this guy gave the Detroit Lions starter quality reps when he when he when he started games at center. He was a quality starter. Detroit is known for having one of the best offensive lines in the league. And so for a guy for one of the best offensive lines in the league who started multiple games and did well in that role to come and start for this team, I think is great, especially with this age. I think he's only 26 years old. So it's still a lot of upside. It's not one of those band-aid kind of guys like Gabe Jackson was. Still got some years left. He just didn't have the opportunities given to him before. I think he really can do well. I think people are are really not giving him credit for what he can give to this team. I think the only reason why they were able to get him for such a cheap rate was just because people looked at more of his performance as a right guard, and he's really not a right guard. He didn't even play poorly as a right guard. It's just not his forte. He excelled as a center because that's really where he truly is, and that's where the Seahawks are going to play him, so there shouldn't be any issues. Actually, now that I think about it, the guard depth issue might be fine because I just remember Evan Brown can play. He he can play right guard. So worst case scenario, you'd move him over. I mean, he he, he like I said, he's not gonna give you the best play, but he'll probably you know be serviceable. 
I think he he proved himself to be serviceable. And your backup, Oluwis Hemi, could step in and play. Now, Oluwis Hemi is a fifth-round pick. And you might say that a fifth-round pick is a bit... Maybe my expectations are too high for a fifth-round pick. And, and perhaps that's the truth, but... I think Olu was overlooked. He just didn't he didn't do well in the combine, and that's why he fell to the fifth round. Besides, this draft was one of the most random drafts I've ever seen in terms of no consistency amongst how these players were viewed. So it wouldn't surprise me if this class had the most diamonds in the rough type guys who went really late and got overlooked and ended up being stars in this league. It wouldn't surprise me at all. And then if you had a lot of busts on the flip side of that. So but Olu is one of the most decorated five fifth-round pick centers that I think you can get. I mean, seriously, this guy was a Wilmington Award winner, which is the best uh, the award for the best position, like the best like the best center in the league, the best guy in his position. He won that award across college football. He was deemed the best. He was also awarded the Outland Trophy, which is for all interior offensive linemen. So not only was he the best center in college football, according to a lot of people who voted for this award, but he's the best interior offensive lineman all around. And he did that after transferring from Virginia. And even in Virginia, he was still a Remington Award finalist. This guy has performed consistently at a high level in college, and his level of experience is to a degree that I think it outweighs some of the concerns maybe from metrics on the and at the combine. I just do. I think this guy can come in and start. When you're that smart, when you're that cerebral, when you pick up things that quickly, and you can he's I mean, he's physically what you need at the position. I think that's a huge upgrade. I don't think I, I can't recall a time in recent history for the Seahawks, that they've had a center with that level of a resume. At no point. They've they've really kind of chopped down on center ever since the Max Unger trade. And they've really just kind of had guys. No one who's really pushed the envelope. No one who's really proven anything at any level, really. I mean, it's sad to say, but like... I mean, Cal Fuller was nobody. They just, they just pulled him off the street and decided they like him. Ethan Pokick was a good pick, but they didn't even play him where he needed to be, and he's just now developing into himself because of the development that he got set he, that he was set back from by Tom Tom Cable. So, anywho, center is by far the best position, and I am tremendously excited about. The difference that's going to make for the rest of the offensive line. So now let me circle back to what I was going to say about the tackles. A big reason I feel confident that the tackles will also take a step forward, in addition to everything that I named, is that they'll have better interior play. When when one when your weakest link is stronger, it makes the team better. And that's what I think the Seahawks have done, not only at center, but at guard, and that is going to help the tackles. So that's the O-line. Better all around, as you can see. I, I don't see an area 
on the offensive line where I can truly say they got worse. Now, let's get to the skill positions. Quarterback. I'm not going to do a sound effect. I, I, I say it for better, <laughs> but really it's push. <laughs> if I could push on this one, I would. I got there's, It's not for better. I don't think it's worse. I don't think it's better. It's the same guys. I don't expect Geno to take some leap like I do the tackles. I expect Drew to be slightly better, but I, I, I mean, I hope that Geno's healthy and we don't have to see Drew. But... I I think Geno's going to be Geno. I think Geno's going to do what he did last year, but he's going to do it. I think I, the reason why I laid, if I had the gun to my head, pick one, the reason I picked better was because I do think that with his environment being better, he'll live up to that. Now, for whatever reason, I have a concern that his turnovers will increase compared to what he had last year, but I also think he'll have more touchdowns. I think he'll have more yards. So, you know, that's why I kind of, my, my instinct is to push. But overall, I think the offense will be better. And I think he will be leading that offense. So I go with that. Um, I'll, I do say I think that he gets better with three-point conversions. It has a lot to do with the wide receiver room. We'll talk more about that. But it's really not too much conversation to have there. Some people do think Gino would take a step back. I completely understand that argument. You feel like he had a Cinderella season and that he's going to drop off. Again, the reason why I'm not going to go in that direction is because I feel like his environment shifted. And so his play shifted. If his environment can stay consistent, I think he will be able to stay more consistent. And again, as we continue to go through this, I feel like the Seahawks have built in better contingencies, a little bit more depth, like at guard, at tackle. The, the, the reason, a big reason why I feel like those position groups have improved overall is because the quality of depth, in my opinion, I feel like has improved overall, which means even if the same circumstances happened that happened last year, I think Gino will still be in a better position because he will still have better talent around him. I would expect a drop-off, but maybe not a drop-off of the same level of degree, if that makes sense. Hopefully, I'm breaking that down correctly. But let's move on to running back because, like I said, I'm not going to spend all day on quarterback. That's self-explanatory. But the running back position, is it better or is it worse? Again, got to go better. Now, what's interesting with the running back position is last year they had more guys. Last year, the running back room was Kenneth Walker, the third, who was the backup to the starter, Rashad Penny, at the time when the year first started. Yeah, Tony Jones Jr., we know that guy, his practice squad guy who they pulled up, Godwin, Godwin Ikebuoke, Ikebuoke. I know I'm mispronouncing that. I apologize, God, when I really do. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, add him. He was a practice squad guy who they pulled up too, but he was able to contribute in a meaningful way. I, I actually liked him. Homer, Travis Homer, and DJ Dallas. So there were more guys. Right now, the running back room only has four guys. Kenneth Walker III, Zach Charbonnet, uh, DJ Dallas 
and Kenny McIntosh. They had a fifth guy, I think, on the active squad when they first, it was like five running backs that they kept active. It's one less guy. But the reason, so the depth, you would, you could argue that the depth is less. But sometimes, in my opinion, depth isn't just the number of bodies, you know. I referred to it earlier, the quality of depth. I think that matters. Every running back on what the Seahawks used to do, and it sort of used to drive me crazy, especially at the running back position, is they had these niche players. Travis Homer is the pass pro guy. DJ Dallas is the, I don't know, he kind of became the guy who they relied on to get you a few yards, you know, get you five yards, but he wasn't a guy who could start for you in a pinch. He was just a guy who could come in and, you know, play pretty much. Uh, Nothing too flashy about him. They had the home run hitter guy. That was Rashad Penny. And then they had, I guess, the, the speed guy, like the elusive guy who could do some of the same things that Penny, Rashad Penny could do, but maybe in a little bit more of a dynamic, dynamic way and maybe had a little bit more just explosiveness and, and dynamic dynamics to his game, if you will. But they kind of just had these niches, right, where they couldn't do multiple things. right? Like Travis Homer, when they put him in, wasn't a guy who could make a make a guy miss ever. I've never seen Travis Homer make a guy miss. Like he was a guy. I love Travis Homer, and he probably was the best pass protection um, running back in the game. That's his niche. But if he got tackled, he was going down. Period. It didn't matter if it was third and twenty or three and five. He got tackled. He was going down as soon as he got tackled. So that made them get numbers, but then it kind of it it shows like like that it it's a telltale to the to the defense that they don't have to respect that guy. Like <laughs> like they know that okay if he's in it's probably a pass play because. If they're going to run it with him, which they did sometimes, it would just be to the advantage of the defense. And it always was to the advantage of the defense whenever they would try to pretend like they could really use him as a runner. And he's just not that guy like that. So I'm happy that the current running back room, Zach Charbonnet can do everything. Now we know that that K-9, Kenneth Walker's main flaw is his inability to get the tough yards, to get you the three yards in a cloud of dust. He just doesn't have it in him. Now, maybe he can grow to that. We are going on for his rookie year, so maybe he grows into that. But based off what we see right now, I'm not so sure that's the role you really want for him. I think he'll be able to be competent in it, but I don't ever think that's something you're going to be able to truly count on if that makes sense. Charbonnet, you can. Charbonnet can do a little bit of everything in a less elusive way. He compliments Kenneth Walker Walker III very well in the sense that what Kenneth Walker isn't great at, Zach is. And so there'll be a really great one-two punch. 
But beyond that, now you, you still got DJ Dallas, who is a guy who you can reliably count on to bring you in, spell your running backs. Um, and, and I think he can do well. He has grown in his years. I, I'm, I'm, I can see incremental growth in him. And, and now he kind of can start for you at pinch. Last year, when all the running backs were down and it was Tony Jones Jr. and company, DJ Dallas was hurt and you felt that loss. And when he was able to kind of come back in and, and play for, for some snaps, you saw the offense be able to actually get something done. You saw his impact. Now, that's relative to a practice squad guy, but at one point, when I think when he first got drafted, you wouldn't have been able to even say that. So, that's a good guy to have on your team, especially because he knows the ropes, right? You, you need you need a vet with some carryover there with all those young guys, too. And then Kenny McIntosh. Kenny McIntosh, who I love. They got that guy in the second round, and he, again, he's not a super speedy guy. But I think he's a guy who doesn't have a straight line speed. That's why he fell that far. But boy, does he have football speed. If you put the ball in his hands, all those guys are receiver threats, including DJ. I mean, they never used him in that way, but that was something they talked about quite a bit when he was first drafted as a rookie, that he, he had the ability to catch the ball. And so all of these guys can be receiving threats. You don't know who's going to do what. I think if you ran with Kenny McIntosh, you'd be fine. I, I think it'd be maybe of the quality of D-Day Dallas in terms of running ability, like how much, how many yards can he get you. I would say about what D-Day Dallas can get you, right? He's not a starter quality guy, but I think he is a killer third down running back. And I think it'd be really interesting to see which one of these ends up being the third down guy. I mean... Some people say the third down guy is Charbonnet. So then what is DJ Dallas? And then what is Kenny McIntosh? Now, I I am in favor of the running back by committee approach. So this doesn't make me nervous. It makes me excited because running backs don't last long. Running backs have a short shelf life. If you're going to rotate in, that's one position where you can rotate in, guys. And it be to the to the betterment of your team. Now, you want to rotate them in with reason, right? You don't want them only getting one snap or something, but you can, like, I mean, you can give a, give a guy, uh, I think get K-9 predominantly snaps, but when it comes to who's going to spell K-9, rotate those guys in, man. Keep the shelf life. I don't want K-9 uh, being a bell cow. I think people think that this is still the era of the bell cow running back, and it's not. One of the better running back rooms in the league was the one-two punch of Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. And nobody ever said that didn't go well. And those guys got spelled too. It just wasn't one or the other. They had other guys there that they could put in that they did rotate in for depth as well. So uh, that's kind of a similar system I'd love to see the Seahawks go with. I think the only thing that probably got worse was pass pro. I think I think that was a loss. Travis Homer really was great at that. I don't know if any of these guys are, I mean, I guess DJ Dallas, but I just got questions. I have questions. DJ Dallas was never the best pass pro protector. And so I have questions about will that part drop off? 
but in terms of upside, in terms of versatility, in terms of their ability to be complementary of each other, and we got rid of the redundancy or or the one-dimensionalness of your running back room. It's incredible. So, uh, stars all around on running back. Let's get to wide receiver. Is it better or worse? I'm going with better. Now, I know you're saying, Candace, it's even better on everything. I know. As you can tell, I do feel like the offense on every area really got better. Now, when we get to defense, it'd be a different story. Um, and, and actually, tight ends, it's not quite. We have to end on a little bit of a sour note because I'm not sure about the tight end room. But for the most part, offense overall really improved. If you break it down level by level, it's hard to make an argument for a ton of these positions to be worse. You can maybe argue that quarterback got worse. You can maybe argue that guard got worse. But every other position, I don't think is even close. Everybody is pretty unanimously aware that those positions got better. So I'm just sort of echoing that thought. Now, wide receiver is a really exciting position, and most people are excited about it because the addition of Jackson Smith and Jigba was a perfect one for the Seattle Seahawks. Being able to get a DK, a title locket, we are top two guys, but have finally a third wide receiver. A guy who can move the defense horizontally and make them truly defend every blade of grass. A guy who would be great for Geno because he's really good at the short and intermediate routes and so is Geno. Being that safety blanket that he needs will be incredible. I even think they're going to open up each other's games because it's going to be hard to defend all three of those guys. You want to double cover DK Metcalf? Great. It'll make it so much easier in this single coverage for Tyler Lockett. Or let's say you got that covered. Great. Wonderful. We're just going to take these seven yards for Jackson Smith and Jigba. And we can think we'll, we'll seven yards you to death until you make a decision to change things. And that's when we're going to do a deep bomb right over to DK Metcalf for a touchdown for 60 yards. Great. Seahawks win. <laughs> like, that's that's a winning formula to me. I think the fact that defenses are going to have to choose, I think Jackson, like I said, I think it's going to go in that order. Jackson would initially open up. He will be, I think, a, a go-to guy. Then you'll see Jackson fade off, and you'll really get to see DK and Tyler shine. So a deadly trio. A lot of people, though, tend to think, that because we have this running back room, this running back depth, that Geno won't pass as much. Maybe that's true to some extent. Maybe they run a little bit more because some of their passing was due to strictly, like, not a choice. But I still think this will be a pass-heavy offense. You don't get those three guys and then say, yeah, we're not going to pass anymore. I'm really interested to see how they balance out. I I think they're hoping that the defense is good so the offense can get more snaps so that you can get your tight ends involved, you can get your wide receivers involved because Geno is definitely going to want to toss the ball around. Now, let me get specific. I've, I'm excited. But let me say my, my number one feedback 
if you will, about a reason why I feel like the wide receiver room is better is because you just raised the floor of the wide receiver room tremendously because it puts everybody in the place that they're supposed to be for years. Wide receivers who who should be wide receiver four, wide receiver five have been trying to fill the role of a wide receiver three. That's just how it's been. Now you add to your depth because you have a true wide receiver three. So now your wide receiver four and your wide receiver five can shine in their respective roles where they're supposed to be. For example, so let me go through, let me go through last year. Last year, the wide receiver room was DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, Dorik Young, D. Eskridge, and Penny Hart. D. Eskridge and Penny Hart are wide receivers four and five. And really, Dorik Young, they're all like, none of them, especially rookie year Dorik Young, doesn't have wide receiver three consistency. But they can be really good fours or fives. Potentially. Maybe not really good. They can be fives. They can be good fives. <laughs> That's really kind of where all those guys were. To me, I think all those were like good wide receiver fives, to be honest, last year. Now, there has been years where you had a four, like a Freddie, a Freddie Swain, who was a decent four and nothing more. Ah, bars. Okay. Um, But this year, again, DK, Tyler, Jackson, now Derrick Young, is the wide receiver four. I think you all overtake D. Eskridge. People still talking about D. Eskridge. I think D. Eskridge will probably be wide receiver five. And I think that's fine. I really do. I think De- Derrick Young will take a step forward. They did some really cool things with him as the fullback. He was able to do some of the things that they wanted D. Eskridge to do in terms of your jet sweeps or your fly sweeps. He was able to kind of move the defense horizontally and, and do it pretty successfully, which was great to see. So you've raised the floor of your team. You've put everybody in their proper place, which has increased your depth, just with that one move. And sort of what I alluded to just a couple of minutes ago, because Derek Young and Jackson Smith and Jigba can offer horizontal, they can they can play the field horizontally, jet sweeps, fly sweeps, uh, bubble screens. They can do those things successfully. Now, we always will be weary of the Seahawks and screens, but I'd like to try it with those guys, because with particularly Jackson. Then you've got McIntosh, who you can throw in, too, to do some of those things. So you're not as reliant on D. Eskridge. What I'm saying is, in the past, there's been this chunk of the playbook that's been really important to Shane Waldron, and that's horizontally moving the offense, but he has really been unable to successfully unlock. He's tried and failed, often hit those screens and things but he never he never had the personnel in place to be able to do it in so this whole part of the offense was either not unlocked to the depth that it could and I'm sure it wasn't unlocked to the depth that it could be because it couldn't even get past the surface level stuff so you open up this offensive playbook and now you can really Confuse the defense, right? Do the things. Whether DS Scritch gets better or not, you don't have to say, we can't do these things. We can't do jet sweeps. We can't do fly sweeps. We can't do bubble screens because DS Scritch is injured. 
you're not confined to that box. You don't only have, again, getting away from that one-dimensional stuff, you don't only have the one guy who does this one thing on the team. Now you've got multiple guys who can provide that skill set in multiple situations along with multiple other things, right? They give you other things too. So that interchangeability goes far and their ability to maximize one another as a result of that, I think will go far. So that's my take on the wide receiver room. I think I'm super excited about that one. That is one of the most things to be excited about. And I think it'll make this offense detrimental, you know, lethal. I, I think I think people are underrating this offense tremendously as a, from a national perspective. Now, finally, the tight end room. The tight end room, did it get for better? Did it get for better or worse? Yeah. I think it gets worse. <laughs> I didn't mean to do it twice. <laughs> but I, I I think it gets worse. Maybe not tremendously so, but I just don't see much upside. Um, I think that they'll see less reps because of the three wide receiver set increase. Um, Eva saw their drop off in the second half of last year, and that had a lot to do with not them, but just the two tight end sets don't work that well if there's really not a true threat of the run. Like there needs to be a threat of the run to make the two tight end sets work because then like the question is, are they there to block? Who's blocking? Is a plas blocking? Is it run blocking? That doesn't that those questions don't exist. If you all if you know all they're gonna do is be catching the ball, maybe somebody chipping. Um, so it's worse. Uh, I, is it more likely to me that Will Disley doesn't stay healthy the whole year? Yeah. He's a year older. I know if Fant's a year older, I think he, I mean, he's still young, but I just don't see him growing, taking a step forward. Um, now Parkinson, maybe I, I like Parkinson. I do, but. Will he get the opportunity to really shine? Probably not. So I say you get a lot less from your tight ends. I love Parkinson's blocking increase. I think if it's going to be one thing to get him maybe a smaller second contract, it'll be that. Um, but I, I just don't see it with a tight end room. I think it's still got great possibility. I love those three guys together. Still very high on the concept and that you can still take advantage of those two, three, even three tight end sets. I just don't think you'll see it as frequently. And I think that, you know, some age will get show from, from Disley. And so you may see a drop off in his abilities a little bit or begin to see sort of the decline for that. So, but overall, um, very happy about the possibilities of this offense. And so I thought I would just wrap up this podcast episode really talking about, because I can say, I think it's going to be for better, for better, for better, for better. But let's quantify how or my expectations and really my predictions for where the offense will fall compared to last year. So last year, the Seahawks were 14th in offensive DVOA. Essentially, um, DVOA is just really looking at 
a, a lot of different metrics that, you know, adjusted um, yards per kit, you know, taking out bubbles, you know, screens, stuff like that. Just what it was it efficient, right? How efficient was your offense is really what it's evaluating. And they were 14th in that regard. I think the Seahawks will be at least top 10. I lean towards like eight. I feel like they'll be like number eight, something like that. That's my that's what I predict them to be. I think you'll see an increase in the red zone offense for sure. Because while Gino got a lot of touchdowns, some of those came on like deep situations, deep ball situations. When they got into the red zone, they struggled to convert. They were ranked 20th in that regard. I think they can do better. I think their ability to have horizontal options like screens, stuff like that, will make it a little bit less predictable in goal line and red zone type situations. I think having um, the ability to open up DK Metcalf and title lock it better because you also got Jackson Smith and Nick Butter worry about and to guard him underneath, meaning you can't double team your best guys, I think will open up additional opportunity as well for DK to potentially get more touchdowns because he's a big target you want to aim for. I think you may see more touchdowns from Noah Fant and Kobe Parkinson. Those guys are, I think they got a real good red zone feel. So you may not see an increase. I think you may see a decrease in yards from the tight ends, but I think that the touchdowns, they'll be able to help out and contribute in those red zone situations is when you'll see their value is what I predict. And of course, I, I predict an increase in third down conversions, which the Seahawks have struggled with for years. Last year, they were 20th in that as well. I predict that they go from 20th to top 10. That's a big jump. Candace, why do you predict such a big jump? Now, keep in mind the context. In order for them to jump from 20th to 10th, or for them to have done it last year, they would have only needed a 3% increase in how often they're doing third down conversions. That's really all you need. It, it's really small, small meters, small numbers moving the metrics. I think they can do a three point, a 3% increase in third down conversions. 100%. Like what I just talked about with the, with the changes they made to that offense, with the, Ability to have more, they got third down running backs now. Better one, somebody who can get you to the 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 three three yards in a cloud of dust. Somebody who can get you that third and four, like Jackson Smith and Nigba and Jigba. I think those rookies will help out a lot when it comes to third down conversions. I think they will continue to remain in the top ten in points per game in touchdowns per game because they were. And I do think while last year they were bottom 10 and sacks allowed, I think they can go to average, maybe 16, something like that. Maybe right outside the top 15 with sacks. I think Geno still has a propensity to, to get himself sacked. But I think the improved offensive line will help with that. And I think he'll probably try to be better about throwing the ball away. Just a little bit more to move him up to being average. They can do those things. That is going to be a lethal offense guys and I'm really excited about the possibilities in that regard so 
That's all the time I have for today, guys. Tune in to our next episode next week as we break down for better or for worse on the defensive end. Uh, and then we'll get into some of the storyline training, the, the storylines to watch for training camp the week before training camp will begin. So we are back, full in action, bringing your content on a weekly basis now. Excited to be back. In the meantime, be sure to follow the show at Ethos Seahawks. We'll try to be getting content, responding to any moves that may be made, and get, try to do some polls out there to get a sense for how you feel about the Seahawks roster. You can also follow me personally at CandiceH901. That's it, guys. I'm out. And as, and as always, go Hawks.